0: But for now, let's get to the episode. Part of the Apologetics series, posted May 17, 2021, titled Case Not Strong. Christian Scholars Agree, Pile of Resurrection Evidence. Today is the day. The day two resurrection scholars acknowledge that natural hypotheses can explain Christianity's historical evidence.
1: It can be a bit complicated because you can get these sort of hybrid theories, which I, I would agree with Max, are the most plausible alternative explanations max i'm gonna have to push back on you a little bit buddy (laughs) i can't i can't i just can't see why the evidence would be expected at all on a naturalistic hypothesis
0: i'm sure you don't stick around cameron and let your own guests teach you some things (laughs) welcome to apologia where a former christian takes a look at the claims of christians If you haven't already, please take a moment to tap on the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when new science, theology, and news videos come out. Well, everyone, we're finally here. The last installment in our Once in a While series covering Capturing Christianity's three-and-a-half-hour Loads of Evidence for the Resurrection of Jesus epic podcast featuring Dr. Callum Miller and Dr. Max baker Heitch. If you want to catch the series from the beginning, Tap the playlist above my head. In our last episode, Callum and Max were putting forth potentially irresponsible assertions in the realm of hallucination, trauma, and general psychology. And as it turns out, they weren't quite finished demonstrating a lack of research when it comes to post-bereavement hallucinations.
1: So so just a few of the things that I think make grief hallucinations really improbable in this case is Firstly, they occurred in young people who are far less prone to hallucinations. As discussed in the previous
0: installment, while the greatest number of grief hallucinations are found in older people, that's because older individuals experience more loss. In this 1985 study, and affirmed in a 2019 meta-analysis, when the data is adjusted for bereavement occurrences, it turns out the greatest frequency is in the ages of 30 to 39. Now, we don't know the age of the disciples when Jesus died. Peter was very conceivably in his 30s but this age objection is unsubstantiated and should stop being used. Incognitive, kind of malfunctioning. Grief hallucinations are not a marker of mental illness or incapacity. They are equally prevalent among those of sound mental health. The studies have shown remarkable concurrence in the percentage of the normal population who've had an experience of one deceased. Grief hallucinations are usually negative experiences. Again, the peer-reviewed literature on the subject tells us the exact opposite. A vast majority of people regard their bereavement hallucinations in a positive manner, describing their bereavement hallucinations as comforting or supportive, says this 2018 study. They are mainly felt as pleasant, comforting, and welcome,
1: says this 2020 study. So they usually don't involve staring people up with hope or with joy, as we see in the Gospels. Read the PBHE literature.
0: There's a full spectrum of short-term and long-term emotional effects. Optimism is definitely among them, particularly those who have more than one experience. But I just wanted to add that the joy described is and not a historical fact in question.
1: They're normally experienced by individuals. And, you know, the more people you add to the hallucination at the same time, the more unlikely it gets. Sure.
0: But the point is that we don't need any groups to have hallucinated to explain any of the historical facts in question, just an individual, as Callum and Maxwell admit later
1: in the video. And, and as I say, they're more likely in people who are lonely, unlike the disciples. First of all,
0: the idea that the disciples were approximately together in any sense after Jesus' death is. <laughs> and not a recognized historical fact. Second, the studies on PBHE are clear that it is the feeling of loneliness that contributes to the phenomenon, not the number of people around. I'm sure
1: many of you can attest that a crowd can feel lonelier than an empty room. And normally they, the appearances stop when the grief stops as well. So normally when People stop grieving as the disciples would have done once they started believing in the resurrection after the first appearance or so. Um, the, the appearances would stop because the appearances are directly related to the grief. You're assuming a lot here. You're assuming this happened
0: to multiple disciples. Not necessary to explain the data. You're assuming that it happened
1: multiple times. Also not necessary to explain the data. But we know in the in the gospel accounts. The appearances didn't stop at that time. They carried on even when the disciples were, were very happy. You're assuming a resurrection belief would stop the
0: underlying grief psychology. When the literature tracks cases that can last four or more years among subjects who will express that they joyfully look forward to each encounter.
1: So it has to be a, a, a rare kind of grief hallucination. Yeah. There is
0: nothing about the historical data that in any way necessitates an unusual PBHE they happen in around 15% of the grieving population, regardless of age or any psychological condition. There's no reason it had to happen in groups. As you'll admit yourself, it requires only the loss of a close loved one, which presumably would apply to Jesus and his closest disciples. The research shows that the factors you think are unusual do not actually apply. Beyond this, the 2018 study on bereavement hallucination associations with psychological measures, personality, and coping style discovered that the personality domain of openness to experience was also a significant predictor of having bereavement hallucinations, characterized by openness to unusual cognitive and perceptual experiences. A fisherman who gives up his day job to follow someone claiming to be the son of God is certainly predisposed to be open to unusual cognitive and perceptual experiences. And if Jesus actually was making predictions about his rising from the dead, then the fishermen would not only be open to that experience, they'd be full-on primed to expect it. From where I'm sitting, Peter is a prime candidate for a particularly normal, typical, run-of-the-mill, post-bereavement hallucination event. Not an unexpected or rare case at all. But getting back to general explanations for the historical facts about the origins of Christianity, Max admitted that the resurrection case isn't as solid as some Christians proclaim.
2: If I'm a naturalist, I'm thinking a bodily resurrection is about as unlikely a thing as there could be. So grave robbery by persons unknown. Or
0: Jesus was never put in a tomb in the first place, but rather unceremoniously dumped as was standard Roman crucifixion practice.
2: And then in combination with something like, you know, a very powerful grief hallucination by Peter, and perhaps, you know, some of the others have some kind of experience as well. Perhaps it's like encouraged by the report from Peter. And as time goes on, a sort of story grows up of this um, experience that they all had together. And, you know, we know that, False memories can become cemented over time in a community if a story is told enough times. And yeah, so I guess that's roughly how that that would be like, I think, the best shot that a naturalist has. And, and as I said, I, I don't think that one can say that that's like outlandishly improbable. For someone who believes in the resurrection, this is quite an admission. This
0: resurrection expert described very closely what I think happened. And granted that the non-miracle scenario is not improbable.
1: So, Callum, do you agree with your colleague? I agree with Max that this is possible, or at least that some sort of hybrid is possible, where maybe one person has a grief hallucination, and then it sort of spreads in some way to the others. I don't think, you know, I mean, in general, hallucinations aren't contagious, but there's at least a possibility that it primed someone else too. I think it's unlikely that all of them had grief hallucinations. But you can maybe, you know, bolster the theory a bit by saying, well, maybe they didn't all have to have grief hallucinations. Maybe some of them just had ended up with false memories or ended up in some sort of mass hysteria or something.
0: Exactly. One person became convinced and that
2: person started to convince others. I mean, I guess you're going to have to say that the disciples, their kind of hopes were so set on Jesus as the Redeemer of Israel that they, in a sense, kind of had to find a way to carry on because they'd invested so much of their lives into it up until that point at which he was crucified that, in, in a sense, like all of that was wasted unless they could find a way to say that it was actually a good thing. I mean, I guess, yeah, I, I guess that's, that's the sort of line you would have to go down in order to start being able to explain how it has this incredible kind of missionary impulse. Hang on. Well said. Perhaps it would be in my best interest to just
0: end it here, with the two resurrection evidence experts freely acknowledging that my naturalistic hypothesis is plausible. A huge win. But it's not as though this admission has convinced Calum or Max to give up their dedications to the resurrection. And also, you should be suspect of any quote from an expert that appears to go against the general position of said expert even when I do it. Context is important. So, what
1: has them so convinced? In a sense, you know, there's always going to be a possible naturalistic explanation. Yeah, so I guess the first thing I'd say is that, you know, you can build a strong case for the resurrection with a Bayes factor. Ah, yes. What effort to intellectualize a
0: supernatural claim would be complete without referencing the Bayes factor?
1: So just quickly, a Bayes factor, as Max said, is is essentially a measure of the strength of the evidence. And using probability theory, you can can kind of quantify or you can apply a measure for the strength of some evidence. And the way you do that is by comparing how likely is it that you would get this data or this evidence if the theory is true, and compare that with how likely is it that you would get this data or evidence if the theory is false. And the Bayes factor is just the ratio between them. It kind of makes intuitive sense, because if you think about what good evidence for a scientific theory is, it's basically when a scientific theory predicts something that otherwise would be really, really surprising. And so the question here is, with the resurrection, just how surprising is this data if the resurrection didn't happen? And the strength of the evidence for the resurrection will depend on just how surprising it is. How surprising is what data? Are you talking about the minimal facts
0: that are promoted by Gary Habermas or Mike Lacona? That Jesus died, that people believed he was alive, and now the church exists? If so, the naturalistic proposals both Calm and Max just put forth entirely explain the
2: data. It's completely unsurprising, and they know it. Um, it's not just enough to talk about, you know, the minimal facts uh, sort of case for the resurrection, you know, these five facts or however many you want to include um, concerning what happened after jesus death i think you have to situate it in a broader context and or another way to put it would be that if we had the same kind of evidence concerning an empty grave and um, post-mortem appearances to some random person in antiquity you know same strength of evidence um like i probably wouldn't be inclined to think that that person had been raised totally agree So what
1: additional data are you gentlemen trying to explain? And then you have to work out that probability by saying, what's the probability that Jesus' tomb would be found empty if Jesus didn't rise from the dead?
0: There's a good reason that resurrection scholar Gary Habermas doesn't include an empty tomb as a historical fact to be explained. It is not well accepted by
1: secular historians. It's not corroborated. It's entirely... Well, that's just going to be the probability that Jesus' tomb would be empty by adding up the probabilities of all the possible explanations of that, like grave robbery, or the disciples robbing it, or the authorities robbing it. Or that his body was never in a tomb in the first place. And if all of those are unlikely, then the probability of the empty tomb in general is going to be unlikely. There's significant evidence that Romans typically left victims on crosses,
0: or tossed them in ditch graves, or other mass graves. Yes, there's evidence for a few exceptions— You can quibble about how often such exceptions occurred, but it's ridiculous to say that the thing that most often happened is in any way unlikely. That's like pretending it's unlikely that someone got fries with their Happy Meal just because it's possible to substitute apple slices. The empty
1: tomb fails to be fact- and fails to need an uncommon scenario. I think maybe if there was no religious background to Jesus' ministry and there was no reason to think God would raise him from the dead and so the resurrection had a very low prior probability, I would probably agree with Max and say one of these is probably the case. But in the context of Jesus' ministry and the claims he made about himself and everything else we know about him and about God. I think the resurrection theory is, is far more probable as an explanation.
0: Wait, what do you think we know about Jesus's ministry? Or what claims
2: he was making about himself? Just, and what's that about God? So I, I do think that the case for the resurrection has to also involve a case for theism. And, and to be clear, you don't need to show that God does exist. You know, you don't need to show it's more likely than not. You just need to show it's like, you know, at least sort of, I don't know, one in a thousand or one in a hundred. So you're telling me there's a chance. Yeah! And then when you start to um, throw in some stuff about, you know, how how might God kind of respond to the human situation, and there's any particular human figure in history, looked like a good candidate for the sort of person that God would act through to to bring about some kind of rescue of humanity. Um, Jesus, I, I think, looks like by far the best candidate. That's a pretty
0: massive leap from general theism to a God that wants to bring salvation through a person, let alone what kind of person that might be. This seems post hoc.
2: So yeah, I, I think that, the, that there's a strong case for thinking that the prior probability is is moderate at least. And so that's why I just you know don't think you need the 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 direct evidence, the, the base factor to be all that strong. If you already assume the existence of God and that God
0: wants a salvation plan, and that humans need a salvation plan, and that Jesus actually said and did the things in the Gospels, only then is the evidence compelling.
2: So yeah, I don't know. I mean, so remember that my my claim is that like if there are good arguments for the the prior probability being very low, then the direct evidence isn't strong enough to overcome that. I think like we have enough experience of human beings um being, you know, susceptible un- especially under conditions where there's, you know, a strong kind of religious atmosphere and s- particular kinds of expectations surrounding a certain figure that yeah it doesn't it just doesn't seem like outlandish to me that you could get some kind of you yeah you would need one person to to begin the sort of chain reaction if you will by having perhaps you know let's grant an unusual kind of grief hallucination which is particularly powerful and vivid and so on but but like again nothing that callum has said has has shown i don't think that that kind of thing is like infinitesimally unlikely and then you know for um for some of the others to have some kind of experience or at least to end up convinced um in in ways that you you like certainly can observe like in the modern world where a group of people are kind of primed to start believing that a certain thing happened and, you know, over time, memories kind of get rewritten, that kind of thing. I just don't think that if I was a naturalist, I just can't see how I would think that a bodily resurrection is more probable than that, than the kind of thing I've just sketched.
0: Well said, Max. And you don't even have to be a philosophical naturalist for that scenario to be more probable. Most people who accept the concept of miracles still agree that they're rare and can see that the evidence for this miracle is
1: pretty shaky. yeah, I guess I would just clarify i I don't think if the prior probability was infinitesimally small, the evidence would be good enough just because the the evidence has only a finite finite probabilistic strength the evidence has only a finite probabilistic strength indeed
2: yeah i would just add one more thing which is like i've tried to my best to reflect on how would i view this evidence pertaining to the empty tomb and the appearances if it was just for some some other random figure in history about whom we knew nothing else and I guess the conclusion I come to is that I would just be agnostic about what happened. I would think that something weird happened, but I I would probably just leave it at that. And so, yeah, if I'm going to be consistent, then I think I have to say that would be what my position would be about this evidence as it pertains to Jesus, were it not for the background considerations about God and the kind of person Jesus was. And there you have it. Without already presupposing to somehow know
0: things about Jesus, these scholars would think that something weird happened, but leave it at that. Without pre-believing for entirely unrelated reasons, the evidence for the resurrection is not strong enough for a conclusion. You don't have to take my word for it. Capturing Christianity brought on two scholars to explain it for me. I really couldn't have said it better myself. But if you'd like to hear me try, tap on the Apologia vs. Jesus Resurrection playlist on screen now, and I'll see you over there. Later.